Forgotten Classics, where a good story never goes out of style. I'm Julie, and here we have episode 360 of Forgotten Classics, where we continue with The Wind Boy. But first, a podcast highlight. The Curious Cases of Rutherford and Fry, which sounds as if it should be a detective show. Maybe something from Sherlock Holmes's time, but no, it is a detective show, but of a different sort. Science sleuths Dr. Adam Rutherford and Dr. Hannah Fry investigate everyday mysteries sent by listeners. And this is so entertaining. It's from the BBC. It's a half an hour long. Well, yeah, pretty much half an hour long. And it combines science with a very lighthearted presentation and wonderful chemistry between Hannah Fry and Adam Rutherford. They're both real scientists, but they have a lot of fun and a genuine sense of discovery. The questions themselves are often very simple. Things like, why do we dream? Why do our voices change when we get older? Why do tunes get stuck in our heads? Can horses count? Why don't children like vegetables? And those would seem to be things with very simple answers, and sometimes they are. But they go talk to experts, they do experiments, and generally bring that sense of discovery and fun back to science, which it might have had from when we were kids, but we might have lost. So... It's usually suitable for family listening. I thought I'd mention that because the question seems so simple and it is produced for the BBC, so it's pretty family friendly, but sometimes science leads you into places you don't expect. So for example, the question about why does the hair on our head grow any length and the hair on our legs only grow so long leads to talk about other places on your body where hair grows, where if you have young children, you may not care to be talking about that at that point. So just use your own discretion. You might want to listen ahead of time. But in general, a lot of the time, it would be really fun for kids to listen to. So the curious cases of Rutherford and Fry. I'll have a link in the show notes, but you can definitely find it on iTunes or at the BBC. Now we're going to leave science behind and go to our fantasy world of the wind boy where last time we discovered that those beautiful, amazing looking sandals can climb in the air, which gives a whole different feel to hide and seek. And I would imagine tag and what else can you think of? Races? Sounds like a lot of fun. I liked the tunics and sandals for the kids, which made you think of a Greek style of dressing. And that kind of made me think about this concept that comes from Greek philosophy. Oh my gosh, I'm, you know, I should have looked this up, but I didn't. That there is a perfect form of everything. And everything here is an imperfect version of that. That's not exactly what the author is giving us, but it seems like it kind of might be playing off of that idea. For example, because of the clear land, there are two of everything. There is the little brown house that Kay and Gentian live in. There's the little brown house above them. There's the great artist tulip garden and house down below where uh, Kay and Gentian live. And there's the artist's house where that artist doesn't mind if kids play in his house sort of thing. Now, they're not necessarily being held up as the perfect version, but it is a different way to do things and a different way to think and a different kind of reality. 
So there aren't duplicates of the kids, as we saw. But it's just kind of interesting to think about the author using this idea to draw out ideas about creativity before thinking of Detra being able to see the wind boy in her mind. And this idea that um, in this clear light of the clear land, you can see things for what they really are. So that's something to keep in mind as we go on. It's, it's never explicitly mentioned to us in that way, but it did make me think of it. I liked the point when Gentian met the artist. Everybody talks about him as the great artist, and that's always capitalized when you're reading it in the book. But he's not as grand as everybody has led us to believe. He is a inquiring, curious, normal person. Yes, with more influence and power, but he's perfectly willing to talk to Gentian and ask if she's played with his granddaughter and say, oh my goodness, I didn't know my granddaughter didn't have any playmates. Not at all the kind of pompous person or retiring exclusive person we might have been led to believe because of the way the policeman talks or the fact that Detra won't let the kids play in his garden, which is very understandable. Somebody's grand garden, you don't want the kids running around in there. I'm just saying. He's not who we think he is. All right, there's also a huge theme, as you've probably noticed, running through here about immigration and being a refugee, the way refugees are treated in this little village. Not very nice. People don't understand them, especially the kids. And, of course, we're being told from children's point of view, so they're trying to fit in. And the mother wants them to fit in. You know, there's stress made, and we'll see it again and again on we will have to live here. We want to make friends here. This is going to be our home. We have to become like these people. And this is a huge theme, of course, in America. We're a nation of immigrants. We should understand this. This book was written in 1923, which is post-World War I, and that would have had a lot of refugees coming in. Our whole history, as I mentioned, you know, whether you're Italian or Irish or, I don't know, Ukrainian or, of course, in more recent times, Hispanic, Asian, whatever, you're being looked at as being an other, you know, and that's very popular to talk about these days. And, of course, there's a lot of talk about immigration laws. How do you handle it? Do you just have open borders? Do you have very strict laws? Do you keep people from sneaking in? What do you do once they've snuck in? How do you deal with kids whose status might not be very stable? Which kind of brings us to the book again, right? They're trying to fit in. They want to make the mother happy. They want to uh, make their classmates happy. It's not seeming to work out. It does seem like it's kind of early days at this point based on a couple things they said. But I do want you to know, I did not pick this book for that reason. I was pretty surprised as I was reading it out loud going, wow, here's immigration again. And I think part of it is because, you know, when that book was written in 1923, it was a timely topic. And it's timely now. As I just said, we are a nation of immigrants. We see waves of immigration all the time. Sometimes people are received more graciously than they are at others. But I would say that this book kind of conveys something that's important to remember, aside from we're being shown the point of view of the kids who are kind of miserable because they don't fit in as well as they could. 
which is that it's a personal thing. The artist does not make them feel different. Nan does not make them feel different. And um, the policeman does. He seems to be kind of a jerk. But when he's reminded by looking into Nan's eyes and thinking about the mountains, he can come back to a more proper center. In fact, the wind boy could be considered a bit of a refugee from the clear land. He's not allowed to play with anybody in his own country because he's broken the laws, essentially. He's done something that's bad, and until he's rectified it, he's been been cast out to correct the problem. So the author I like is looking at this from all different angles, and we'll see more of this as the kids go to school, as they interact more with other people. And we do see the clear people kind of held up as being a different way to handle it. In some ways better, but in some ways just different. And so it's a lovely story, but I did want to mention the immigration thing because I thought this is going to seem awfully pointed. And I would say that when I read it as a kid, it never occurred to me to think about it in terms of being immigrants, if I thought about it at all in terms of their situation, I would have really understood it because my family moved a lot. My father was one of those upwardly mobile, now I can get a new job here and there, which was very much the way in the 1960s and 70s. So every few years, I was into a new school where I didn't belong, where maybe I came from a region where things were different. So I was shy, I was quiet, and sometimes I was picked on. Yeah. You know, that's how it is. I didn't worry about it. Well, I might might have worried about it, but not that I can remember. I just kind of got on with things and eventually I did belong, which is also the history of our country. So we're just seeing these kids at this point. And as I say, I mostly just realized it could seem very pointed and it's not. I just love this story and it's finally time for me to read it. So with all that gotten out of the way, Let's get into the story. We still have the rest of Saturday, Detra's home. What are we going to do? Let's find out. Let's dive in. Chapter 7 The Spring in the Woods Saturday afternoons and Sundays were the best part of the whole week for Kay and Gentian for their mother was at home then, and could go on walks with them and tell them stories. The walks were usually out across the meadows that lay behind the little brown house, toward the woods and the purple mountains. They never could reach the mountains in just an afternoon's walk, of course, but they liked even going toward them. And on those days, when they walked rather fast, and did not ask for too many stories by the way, they did reach the woods. Detra made up the stories during the week while she worked at her machine in the Roaring Factory. That was odd, for these stories were all about the woods and fields and streams and the people, unseen by mortals who dwell in them, tranquil beings in tranquil places. Those were the stories she made up. But there were others about great men of distant times and faraway countries, and added to these were the myths of their own land, the land they had perhaps left behind them forever. The children liked the myths best. Between the stories, they would talk together about Hazar, the father who had lost them and was now hunting them over the world. 
Indeed, Detra talked about him so much and kept him so alive in the children's minds that forever after, when they remembered those Saturday afternoons, it seemed as though their father had been with them on the walks. Today, though, there were no stories. The children were too full of their adventures in the clear land to talk about anything else. And besides, Nan was with them. Detra had helped with the dishes so that she might come. For Detra knew from the very first that Nan would be at home in the fields walking toward the mountains. She was rather like one of those tranquil people that moved through Detra's dreams while she sat or stood in front of her machine in the roaring factory. She thought it more and more while she listened to Nan's voice answering the children and saw her short curls blown about in the sun. But Detra hardly listened to what the three were saying, for it was all talk of the clear land, and Detra still had an idea that that must be a game Nan was playing with the children. So she did not interrupt them, but thought her own thoughts instead. They were thoughts of Hazar. Would he ever find them? And so, thinking her own thoughts, Detra gradually fell behind. Her children and Nan were walking as though they meant to reach the mountains. Indeed, half the time they did not walk at all, but ran and danced as children run and dance in the clear land. At last the three came to the spring in the wood. There it lay cupped deep in green and silvery moss. See, whispered the children, when you look deep down into it, bending close above, it is like the shoeman's window, only with bright pebbles instead of a silver sandal away off down there. Nan stretched herself out on the silvery moss and looked down long into the crystal water. It is like the window, isn't it? Kay asked. And it's like the air around the clear land, too, once you think of it. Yes, it is like both, Nan agreed. Gentian pulled at Nan's wood-brown frock. Do you think, Nan, we might get through into the clear land by way of this spring? Nan sat up. Yes, I think you might. "'But it would be harder getting back this way when once you had gone. "'If I were you, I would not hurry things, "'but wait until the clear land showed itself to me again without my trying.' Gentian now stretched herself out on the moss "'and looked down into the clear water as Nan had done, her face quite close. "'Nan and Kay wandered off, leaving her there to look and listen for birds.' "'Kay knew a very great deal about birds and was forever adding to his knowledge.' It was a proud time for him now when he could display his lure before Nan, Nan who listened so quietly and was such a splendid companion. Gentian hardly heard them go. She was gazing at the shining, smooth, many-colored pebbles down at the bottom of the water. They were pink and purple, blue, green, and white. But besides these fascinating colored ones, there were many uninteresting gray ones. They were uninteresting only in the first glance, however, for almost at once Gentian found it was the gray pebbles she looked at most. She saw now that they were dove gray and worn so smooth, so smooth. Then the longer she looked, the more surely she saw that the gray was not just a mask for other color, not pink and purple, blue, green, and white, but all those mingled the smooth gray pebbles now to Gentian's eyes were pieces of rainbow. Then her gaze drifted to the center of the spring, where the crystal water, pure and clear and cold, welled up from under a ledge of gray rock, a rainbow rock. 
As Jenshin looked, her heart beat fast and her lips smiled, for she was learning the secret of the rock. What that secret was, I cannot tell you, for Jenshin says it is not a secret in words. You must just know it without words. That is all. Kay and Nan by this time had wandered beyond her hearing, and the birds that had flown away when the three had come to the spring now returned. Jenshin heard them singing above her, one little yellow throat fairy-like behind his black mask that had nothing frightening about it, came and perched on a young birch shoot just at her shoulder. There he sang his witchery, 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 over and over. His mate was there, too, without any mask. They never minded Gentian, for she was lying so still, so still. Perhaps they thought she was just part of the wood. But... A strange thing was happening to Gentian now, in spite of all her stillness. She was looking down through the crystal spring into the clear land. But the clear land is up, not down, you cry. Yes, of course. Well, Gentian was looking up through looking down, that is all. It can be done. She was seeing into the clear land as though through a window pane. The window pane was the crystal spring. But she would never have known it was the clear land, and not just a reflection of the wood where she lay, had it not been for the crystal light. For she was looking into another beech wood, and there was a spring there cupped in silvery and green moss. It was the other spring, of course, the spring that overhung this one where she was really lying. So far this other place was the same as that place where she lay, save for the crystal light, but there were two people by that other spring, the wind boy and her mother. Yes, there was Detra in the clear land, sitting cross-legged on the moss like a schoolgirl, and there was the wind boy on the opposite side of the spring from her, lying moody and silent, staring into the water. Gentian had never seen her mother like this. Her face was so shining and carefree, but that was not it. There's no way to tell you, but she was rather like a larger, clear child. Gentian was still for a while with wonder, but at last she cried, Mother! At her cry, the yellow throat perched on the young birch shoot at her shoulder, dropped his song in the middle, and flew startled away. But Detra did not turn her clear eyes to Gentian, for Gentian was only seeing through into the clear land. She was not in it herself and there was no way for Detra to see or hear her. No. Instead of turning at Gentian's cry, Detra smilingly spoke across to the wind boy. Gentian heard not a word of what she said, nor the wind boy's reply, but she could see that the wind boy laughed as he answered, and for the moment forgot his moodiness. And in that moment of his laughter, Detra worked quickly with her strong, beautiful fingers on the little image of the wind boy that was standing upright in the moss before her. She was trying to catch the laugh in the plastilina. Why, Detra had not had the statuette when they had all come across the meadows together. Gentian was sure of that. How was it there with her now, then? And how had she found her way through to the clear land? Mother! Gentian cried again. And at that second cry, the birds that had alighted farther off than the yellow throat and not been disturbed by the first cry stopped their songs too and flew away. Gentian was left alone in the silent wood, 
and Detra, seen through the crystal water, did not turn her eyes toward the cry. She only went on working at the plastilina with swift, beautiful fingers and talked to the wind boy. Gentian saw her lips moving. Gentian was frightened now. She reached toward her mother. At the instant of her gesture, the spring was a window no longer. It had become just a spring, and Gentian's arms were in the water. The other spring was gone, the wind boy and her mother. She stood up then and looked all about her in the wood. How silent! Not even the sound of wings stirring amid leaves. She called, Kay! Kay! Nan! Hello! Where have you gone to? Nan! At the very top of her voice. Hoo! It was a long way off through the trees. It was Kay's reassuring voice. And then came, Hoo! That was Nan, clearer and higher like a bird call. Gentian fled from the still spring and ran toward the voices. She met Kay and Nan in a meadow of bracken in a little ravine. "'What is the matter, Gentian?' Nan asked the minute she saw Gentian's voice. "'What has happened?' But Gentian could only say, "'Where is mother? I want my mother!' "'Why, we left her at the edge of the woods hunting violets. You know that. It is not far away.' "'Oh, do you think she will truly be there in the sunshine just hunting for violets? Do you think so, Nan?' "'Yes. Why not?' But Gentian found no words for the sadness and trouble of her heart. If you had seen your mother so near and called to her, and she could not hear or see you, I think you would have felt the same. Oh, let us hurry then and find her. Hurry! So the three ran away through the bracken to the edge of the woods, and there, standing and looking about, they at first saw no Detra. Gentian was about to call, Mother! in a much louder and wilder way than she had called at the spring. But the call stopped at her lips. For there, just in front of them, down in the grass, a large bunch of gathered violets beside her, lay Detra, sound asleep in the sunshine. Kay thought, How tired and pale she looks! Oh, why can't I go to work in that roaring factory and let her stay at home? Nan thought, The sun and meadow were just what she needed. But Gentian thought nothing at all. She flung herself upon her mother with a dozen kisses. Detra sat up, surprised out of sleep, drawing the back of her hand across her eyes. Her dark hair came slipping and sliding down around her shoulders as the pins loosened. Kay found them for her, though, quickly, searching in the long grass. Then, still sitting there in the sunny grass that came almost up to her shoulders, Detra wound up her smooth hair and pinned it high into place. Her eyes were clear with sleep and her lips smiling. Gentian, watching her, silently contented, thought, Why, she looks just as she did at the spring in the clear land. Where is the statuette? Detra, glancing up at her little girl, caught the happy light in her eyes. What is it, Gentian? she asked. But Gentian only asked, Did you have a dream, mother, while you slept here? Were you perhaps dreaming? No. Detra shook her head, quite certain. No, no dreams at all, just deep, deep sleep. And Detra was right. She had had no dreams at all, only the best sort of sleep there is out there in the sunshine. Then they went home across the meadows, only this time Gentian stayed back with her mother and carried the violets loosely in her pinafore, not to crush them. Nan and Kay went on ahead and were home long before they were, getting supper ready for them. 
but Gentian never told her mother how she had seen her through the crystal spring. Somehow, it was too sad to talk about. Chapter 8 Through Music That night, Detra brought out the wind boy and worked on his mouth, trying to make it smile as it should, a clear land smile. But she sighed often, for in spite of her long sleep and rest in the meadow grass that afternoon, she was not succeeding. Gentian heard her mother sigh. Just wait, mother darling, she said. When Kay and I have caught the masker and got the mask, you can get the wind boy right, for then he will be happy. He will be as happy and clear-eyed and smiling as the other clear children. Only wait for that, mother. Detra drew the back of her hand across her eyes. Perhaps, she said, but you must try hard to help him toward happiness, children, for until he is happy and carefree, how can I make him so? But then she shook herself, as though from a dream, and pushed the statuette away from her, away to the opposite side of the table. Laughing, she stood up, stretching her arms out sleepily. Come, children, she said, I am already half asleep. That's the long walk. I will go to bed with you tonight, and now it is time. How pleasant it was to have Mother going up the stairs with them and to bed at the same time. Oh, they wished that every Saturday they might go so far that she would be so tired. But Nan, in spite of the walk, was neither tired nor sleepy. When the dishes were done and the floor brushed up and the milk bottles put out at the back door, she blew out the lamp in the kitchen and went out to sit on the doorstone in the spring starlight. And as she sat there, as still and softly luminous as the night, her head back against the doorpost, her eyes half shut, a sudden breath of sweet wind came down to her out of the cherry tree. She lifted her eyes as though the sweet wind had spoken to her. There was a parting in the high flowery branches, and out through it, from his secret place of watching, came the wind boy into the evening air. Softly and lightly, on half-spread wings, he drifted down and stood by Nan on the doorstone. She moved to one side to make room for him. "'I've been up there all evening watching for that old masker,' he told her. "'But it never came at all tonight, and now it won't, I suppose, for it's long past twilight. It's no use.' Don't give up, Nan said softly, so as not to wake the sleepers in the house. Other twilights are coming, and in one of them you will surely get back your mask. The wind boy grew silent. Nan did not look at him and grew silent, too, for she knew that more than he had told her was bothering. She was sorry, but until he should speak, she did not know how to comfort him. After many minutes, he leaned toward her, putting his hand on her knee. He said, turning his head away, That little girl asleep up in the house there promised to help me. So that was it. She will help you, and Kate will help too. They both mean to, but tonight they were sleepy from their long walk, and besides, this is their mother's day. But when next the masker comes wandering around in the twilight, be sure Kay and Gentian will be ready. The wind boy raised his head up at that, and Nan saw that he was cheerful again, that is, as cheerful as he could well be while he was shut away from his clearland playmates and must go without his silver sandals. 
After that they said no more, but stayed silent and still as the starlight in friendly company. It was late in the evening that the policeman was on his final rounds, and taking a last look about for the masker, stopped at the little swinging gate to look hard at Detra's doorstone. It almost seems as though there's somebody there, he whispered to himself. But when he had leaned over the gate and looked longer, he shook his head. <laughs> Just starlight glimmering on the stone, he smiled to himself. I'm beginning to see people in mere starlight. Well, that's no worse than seeing mountains in a girl's eyes. What's coming over me? Puzzling about the odd tricks he was beginning to play on himself, he moved away toward his home and his bed. Then came Sunday morning. As always on Sunday, Detra took her children to the village church. Is Nan coming too? The children asked hopefully. Would you like to? Detra asked Nan. But Nan could not, for she had brought no hat with her when she came from the mountains, answering Detra's advertisement. She had not thought about church. But I will cook you a good Sunday dinner, she promised. I am going to try a receipt I learned in the mountains. Honey cakes. That will be dessert. You will want to go and live in the mountains yourselves once you have tasted them. So, with many a backward glance, for it would have been fun to watch Nan make those honey cakes, the children went off with their mother to church. Perhaps you like going to church so well that you wonder at Kay and Jenshin's dragging feet and backward glances. But then you go to church in your own village where you are at home and can understand all the words of the hymns and the words of the minister. Now these children were even more bewildered in church than in school, and more uncomfortable. Partly this was because of their clothes. To church they must wear the same faded blue that they wore to school, and all the other children who came to church with their mothers and fathers were dressed in their best clothes. Gentian and Kay felt that they were well stared at for daring to go to church in everyday garments. But their greatest grief was Detra. She was truly so beautiful, their mother Detra, but no one in church could know it. For there she was in her dark cape, the cape she wore to the factory every day and that the children hated. It covered her from her head to her heels. But that was just as well, for under it was only the old black smock dress that she wore daily. Detra, it is true, had embroidered a bright bunch of buttercups on both her pockets, and that made it gayer. But the dress was too shabby in spite of the buttercups to show at church. And then she had covered her smooth dark hair that looked so beautiful wound high on her head with a small black turban. Why, Kay said to himself now for the hundredth time as they walked along toward church, it's just as though mother were a candle, only all snuffed out by those horrid clothes. But the children had never told their mother how they felt about church, and if she guessed, she never told them that she guessed. For Detra knew that it was best, if you want to become at home in a land, to go to church there. The village church was white with a white high steeple. It stood at the top of a little hill over the town. When the children and their mother today reached the hill, they saw that it must be later than they had thought for there was no one on the sidewalk at all walking up toward the church. They hurried their pace, and when they reached the door, they heard the music of the first hymn. It floated out to them through the open windows. Oh, this would be worse than ever, 
going in when everyone was before them and the service begun. But when they had reached their own places, Kay's heart suddenly glowed warmly, for this, he saw at once, was to be one of the few better Sunday mornings. Rose Marie was in church. She stood at one end of her grandfather's long pew and Miss Prine at the other. She was all in white today, with soft hem-stitched ruffles at her neck and wrists. Her dancing dark curls were lost under a wide white leghorn hat with a wreath of daisies, buttercups, and bachelor buttons around the rim. But she could not smile at Kay, the smile that said so much, for her pew was way down in front and Kay could only see her back, and now and then the sight of her cheek. This was just a little village church, and so there was no pipe organ to comfort the refugees' hearts with its noble, swelling tones. There was just a little parlor organ, and Miss Todd, their schoolteacher, was playing it today instead of the regular organist. "'Miss Todd looks different somehow, doesn't she?' Gentian whispered to Kay, while Ditro was finding the place in the hymn-book. Kay tore his eyes away from the beautiful wreath of flowers around the rim of Rosemarie's leghorn hat and looked at Miss Todd at the organ. It was true. Her church expression was very different from her school expression. School puts her out, I guess, the way Mother's clothes put her out, Kay whispered back. And Gentian nodded, for she and Kay understood each other very well even when queer things like that were said that most people wouldn't understand exactly. At school, Miss Todd was very brisk and ready. Here in church, playing the little parlor organ, she was neither brisk nor ready, but she was ever so much more alive. The children noticed it even more later when she played while the collection was being taken up. Miss Todd looked as though she had forgotten the congregation then, the choir, and even the young minister sitting high above her in his black clothes with the turned-around collar. She was thinking only about the music and what it meant. And suddenly, as Kay and Gentian gazed at her, wondering, they began to hear the real music, the high, noble, pipe-organ tones the composer had heard. This new, rich music carried them away, and they did not think to be startled. It carried them away into church in the clear land. At least, they thought it was church. For there were the clear children they had played with yesterday, sitting in a large half-circle. Were they sitting on a crescent-shaped bench? Kay and Gentian could not be sure, for they only glimpsed them for a second. Their colored tunics and gleaming sandals and the opal-shaded wings of some made the half-circle seem a rainbow arch dropped upon the grass. Why the children thought this was church was because of the rapt, uplifted faces of the clear children, and the music, ah, oh, more splendid and holy than any pipe organ music, that filled the sky. Gentian looked toward Kay quickly to see whether he was through into the clear land with her, but how she knew where to look, that would be hard to say, for he was sitting on the bench at the very opposite end at the tip of the crescent. All the clear children were between them. He was looking toward Gentian across the crescent, too, and their eyes met for an instant. Then they smiled, for they were glad they had both got through together. But the music! The whole sky was throbbing with this great music. And in the instant that the eyes of the brother and sister met, the music dropped crystal curtains between them. 
They could not see each other now, nor any of the clear children. Kay and Gentian each sat alone and looked out into what? I cannot say. Kay thought afterwards it was the ocean stretching away forever as far as his sight could reach. But Gentian was sure it was the sky, that she was looking out through the sky forever and forever. But whichever it was, the crystal clearness of the air made it possible for the eyes of the children to see a much greater distance than they ever could down here in this denser air. And while they looked out into infinity, the organ rolled. It shook their very hearts, and then it grew still. But when the organ stilled, the infinite blue that surrounded the children took up the music, not in their ears, but in their hearts. No matter how long Kay and Gentian live here on this earth, they will never forget that instant of church in the clear land. But it could only be an instant, because the sexton passing the plate for the collection down in the village church called them back. Perhaps the eyes of the congregation following the sexton in his plate passing helped too in that calling back. For all the people who sat behind them, or beside them, knew it was their turn to put in their pennies, and expected them to do it. And as we usually do what we are expected, the children came rushing back from the clear land and gave their might to the collection. They could hardly at first believe that they were back in the village church again. But there was Miss Todd, still playing at the little parlor organ, her face alive. And there was Rose Marie down in front with the bright wreath around her leghorn hat. And there was their mother beside Gentian, but with the faraway look in her eyes that the children very well knew meant that she was thinking about Hazar, their father. And hadn't they just dropped their pennies into the bronze plate? Oh, yes, this was real enough. They had heard the pennies ring a little on the metal. Things in a dream don't ring like that. But even so, it was hard for the children to believe that the village church was real. So suddenly had they come back into it, and so shadowy for a while it had seemed. As they were walking home, one on each side of Detra, Kay said across to Gentian thoughtfully, I don't think I shall ever mind church again. Everything feels different now somehow. Gentian had been thinking the same thing. She wanted to tell Kay so, and say that now, all because of that instant in the clear land, she was seeing everything that touched her little life in proportion. But she had no words for this, and so she was silent, thinking. Nan's honey cakes were all and more than she had promised, and the rest of the dinner was excellent, too. For Nan today had made a very little go a long way, and even seem rather grand in the giving. I don't believe Rosemarie's having such a fine Sunday dinner as this, Gentian exclaimed when she had taken her first bite of honey cake. But Kay said, Oh, I hope she is. I truly do. But I am afraid, too, she can't be. Nobody could have such good food as this. In the afternoon, they sat in the shade of the cherry tree, this little family with Nan, too, while Detra read them many stories from the most beautiful story in the world. But toward twilight, the first thunder shower came up. It began with a low rumble away off somewhere beyond the purple mountains. Oh, dear! 
Kay cried. If it rains, the masker won't be out. I hope it doesn't rain until dark. But Detra was surprised at that. I thought you dreaded the masker. I didn't know you wanted it coming around. Oh, but you see, now we're going to catch it and get the mask away for the wind boy. Everything is different now, the children explained. But their fears were justified. By twilight, great sheets of warm spring rain were driving across the little garden, and the children were inside, kneeling on the bench, looking out disappointedly into the growing dark. Well, there's tomorrow night's twilight, Nan comforted them. Yes, but before tomorrow's twilight could come, they must go to school, for tomorrow was Monday. And the children were in the habit of dreading Monday as much as they looked forward to Saturday. They were, you see, already forgetting a little the new sense of proportion they had discovered in church that morning. But though tomorrow was Monday, it was to be quite different from any other Monday. You shall hear about it.